What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministrade Podcast. Amen. I love for us to open uh, in the Bible again to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you're new, uh, we are studying through theology of the gospel. I want to encourage you if you have not. Uh, if you've not heard, if you've missed a session, we're recording the audio of every single session, and so we'll actually, uh, what we'll do is tomorrow morning, we'll post it on all three of our Facebook accounts, HeartCry Church, HeartCry Cowboy Church, and Passion Creek Church, and we'll post the uh, individual links so you can listen uh, to the ones that you missed, uh, and I think that might be helpful for some. Obviously, tomorrow morning also, this session will be uh, released as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, what we're looking at today is what is the church? We're also looking at what is the kingdom of God? So in other words, the first week we, we really lofty, you know, theology, what is a study of God and then also the gospel. Um, anybody read through what is the gospel yet when you purchased it? My wife raised her hand, amen, you are the best, the rest of you, I don't know, okay, and so... Uh, Pastor Billy's already read it, uh, but I encourage you, I'm so glad you guys bought it, but please read it. We're really going to emphasize it on, on week five, so in two weeks from now, we're going to look back at that book. Um, but anyways, last week was more soteriology, so studying the elements of salvation. This week is really defining the people of God. How do we fit in it together as a community? Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is one of the famous verses that people go to uh, when we look at why we gather together. And so, um, and so let's, start, let's start in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. And what I'm so, I'm so thankful that I've been raised in a family that recognizes the importance of church. The Christian life cannot be lived alone. Amen. And it's not the way it's intended. And I hope after tonight's session, you agree with that uh, more than you agreed with it walking in. Uh, so, so honestly, I actually want to address that real quick. It's very fascinating, the culture we live in today, how much we are just against the concept of church. We have a lot of people that say, oh, I have a relationship with Jesus, but they don't have a relationship with his bride. And it's very confusing to me, and when you study God's word, it's hard to come up with any other conclusion than that. Uh, so let's look at the definition. It's in red in your uh, handouts that we gave you. If you didn't get the handout, it's over in the foyer. Uh, we hope uh, you keep gathering them every week and filling in the blanks. But here's the definition Mark Dever gives of the church. The church is that collection of people who are hearing the word of God, that's most important, responding to it with their lives, and who have obeyed Jesus' specific commands to be baptized and proclaim his death in the Lord's Supper. I love that. I think every single element in that definition, you cannot truly have the church without every element. So you see the element of, of uh, gathering together, listening to God's word, responding, being obedient, and also getting baptized and also having the ordinance of, of Lord's Supper. Now I want to, before we really dive into it, there's actually three different categories of church that we need to know. So the first fill in the blank is local church. Most times on Sunday mornings, it's likely that, that Pastor Billy or I or whoever, whatever church, you, whatever, they're usually, when we talk about the church, it's talking about the local body, okay, the local body of believers. And so that's what we call the local church. I provided a definition. It's body believers gathering together in the same community. This is very important. It's great to have 
Uh, I'm not going to give away the next word, but but, but what's so important is to have a local church, not just somebody you listen to from afar, although that has so much great value, but local church is where you can actually meet together, encourage each other, and get this. What's so interesting about this world, I love how God created it, every single city has a different culture. And so it has different problems within the culture. And so we get together as a local church and we address the problems that are in our city. And so for us, feeding the homeless isn't as much as a, of an emphasis for us because it is so stinking hot, right? I, I just, that just doesn't really work here in Queen Creek. And so we do, I think there are some, you know, that are homeless, but it's not, not the same as it is in San Diego. Does that make sense? And so for us, we deal with other cultural problems, and so it's important for us as the local church to get together, proclaim God, how he's faithful, but also responding to it by addressing the needs of the city. We're going to get a little bit more into that as this class goes on, but I want to make sure I put that in there. Universal church is the next category, universal. This is every believer in Christ around the world today. Now, do not confuse this with the universal church. It's a denomination uh, or it's a train of thought and believing that eventually that everyone's going to believe in Jesus, that eventually at the end of, all, end of it all, everyone will be in heaven. We do not believe that because Scripture clearly says, Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus is the exclusive way. And so if you live your life and you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you're not going to heaven. I find it funny, if you really believe that everyone's going to heaven, why even try to save anybody while you're here on earth, right? I just go party. You know, like, at the end of it all, we're not going to hell. Why are we meeting here? You know, like, why, what are we doing here? Okay, and so I think it's fascinating that there's even attendance at those kind of churches because if you actually go the full circle... It's like, wow, there's no point coming to this. I don't need to give to you. I'm going to heaven anyways. Okay, and so uh, Universal Church, what we're talking about is the entire world. Uh, I think it's so important for us to learn from the Universal Church. I spent time in Malaysia, and I hope to go back and bring a team there soon. What I loved about Malaysia, I actually got to preach there, and, uh, and it was to like 400 people. And it's so interesting because the, the things that they deal with are so much different than us. But also, the way they view God is different, but it's a, it's a good difference. There's certain qualities we know about God and we think of a lot. Let's just say, for example, our culture, God's love. But it's fascinating. You go to a different culture. You learn from the universal church on the other side of the planet. They have a better understanding of God's wrath than we do. And so it's important to learn from them and, and gather information from them. So this is why I love books. This is why I love uh, meeting with missionaries around the world. That's why I love for us to go to different places around the world because we get to learn from somebody else, not just in our bubble, which the internet is amazing for that because we have access to the universal church more than ever before. So let's not just bag on the internet all the time. It does some great things. The last thing we have is the historical church. So some people, when referencing the church, they're talking about everybody who has passed away uh, but was a, was a believer uh, during their lifetime. Now... People ask me all the time, literally no one's ever asked me, but what is my favorite book? I'm so glad you asked. This is my favorite book, like seriously, the Bible, I know that, okay, like, all right. My second favorite book is historical theology. It's thick, okay, I understand that. But what's fascinating about this book is, uh, you guys ever heard of systematic theology? It's kind of what we're doing, okay. Uh, Wayne Grudem wrote systematic theology. This book by Greg Allison, I've met him before, uh, he wrote this book in congruence with systematic theology, what essentially does, let's just say the doctrine of angels. What's cool about this book, it looks at the first 300 years, what did the early church view angel? How did they view angels? Okay, 
how did the medieval ages, how did they view angels, okay? What about the Reformation? How do they view angels? Now, modern times, how do we as theologians view angels? It's fascinating to learn from church history and see, you know, like the different emphasis we've had throughout our, throughout history. And so I find it very helpful because it helps us, it helps us uh, to keep our blinders off, to recognize, wow, you know, 500 years ago, they recognized something that we don't. For example, Puritans. I don't know if you know any Puritans. Uh, well, you don't know them. They're all dead. Okay. But uh, if you do know them in history, uh, classes don't really do a good job of representing them. Uh, but Puritans, they are fascinating because they dealt with sin. They tried to kill sin in every area of their life. Uh, that's something us today, we just let so many sins go by. It's important for us to learn church history and read people like Jonathan Edwards or uh, Richard Baxter or uh, what is that awesome guy, Mortification of Sin, I forget his name. Okay, look him, John Owens. Uh, those people are very fascinating to read and it helps us shape how we're supposed to view life. So if you're interested in that book, it's also available on the Kindle and uh, I think it's fascinating. Just go through it slowly. It's helpful just to look at one topic. You don't have to read it start to finish, but hey, I wanna know about the Trinity. You can see what the Trinity says about that. So that's very important. The next category, now we're gonna look at the marks of the church. Now, um, so the next fill in the blank. Uh, so this is actually, yeah, let me do a quick historical application. It's really interesting that the church, it's really weird how we view church today compared to how most people view church throughout history. Church today is so individually self-centered. Can we all agree to that? I'm not saying this church, but church as general, what can we do for you? Church is supposed to be what can we do for God, amen? Like, we're not here for you, we're here for him, all right? And I hope you join us. Uh, it actually, it's very fascinating when you study history, when you look at church, when you look at culture. Uh, anybody ever heard of Rene Descartes? He, he's the one who, who is the philosopher and says, I think, therefore, I am. It was at that moment, it's crazy how influential his writings were. It created an entire movement where we no longer thought in terms of community, but we thought in terms of me, myself, and I. Did you know when, when Paul wrote the Bible, when he, Paul wrote the Bible, when he wrote the books that he did in the Bible, he assumed you knew that it takes a village to raise a child. He assumed that you knew the common good for all is better than just the common good for you. You sacrifice in order for the greater good of the community. We don't think that at all today, right? And so it's fascinating. So if you actually read church history, self-help books really begin right after Descartes. And preaching changes at that moment because we fall into this cultural temptation of, oh, because the world says it's about me, 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 I need to make it about me, me, me. I do also find it interesting, I need to stop preaching, but I do find it interesting that no other time in history are we more depressed, even though we're the most self-centered. Have you thought about that? We do more for ourselves than in history, but we are the most depressed in history. And so it's fascinating about scripture, one of the answers, you make it about God and others, and that'll take care of yourself. We, we, we do that wrong. So I just got goosebumps. I'm pumped. All right. Here's the first quality of a mark of the church. It's not light, sound, or a great preacher, although that's, that's a good one. All right. The, the, one of the marks is holiness. Holiness is a mark of the church. The people of God are not only holy through justification, but are also set apart in their ethics towards believers and non-believers. This is what we talked about last week with justification and sanctification. People, when they view our church, that should the number one thing they think of is they are set apart. 
They're different, but in all the right ways, amen? This needs to be a mark of the church. The next mark we need to see is unity. This one is so important. If you read the book of Philippians, let's talk about self-centeredness and depression. Philippians, most people believe, uh, what do you think the common theme is in Philippians? Joy, right? I actually heard a pastor say it recently, and I agree. Actually, joy is secondary. The number one thing that you see in Philippians is mission. The number one thing you see is in Philippians, he is writing about other churches who are putting their money together to bless another church because they're on mission together. They're looking to expand the kingdom of God. And so in so doing, when we live our lives, we're going to talk about this in the kingdom, so I don't want to mess it up too much but we are unified all together all churches everywhere and we give to one another and we help one another in unity and honestly that's what brings us the most joy okay so unity is so crucial this morning i got a text from four other church planners one church planner is very depressed right now is upset because his rent went up and because certain families left and all sorts of stuff we through text pray for him and we've met with him and I've sent some of my people to pray for him and we're able to help each other. That's a beautiful thing. And that is what we have in the gospel of Jesus. We could be unified and we're not competition, amen. We celebrate what, what every other church does. Also in Acts 2, we see with unity, local church is called to find tangible ways to love one another and make sure nobody is in need. Acts 2, you can see that 42 through 47. They gathered their stuff together and they made sure nobody was in need. That is the purpose of the church. And we're supposed to be unified. What is, I think it's scripture. It is. That says, rejoice with those, rejo- with those who rejoice, but what? Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Grieve with those who grieve. And so that is one of the marks. And honestly, I believe this is one of the major ways people come to Christ. Because they see the unity of the church in display in a world that is not unified no matter how hard they try. The next one is so important, truth. We will no longer be the church if we do not guard the truth that has been entrusted to us. Read 2 Timothy. Uh, or listen to uh, Passion Creek Church podcast online. We're, we're going through Second Timothy right now, but, but it's so crucial to guard this truth that God has given us. And it's amazing if you study history how the monks, they did such a great job of making sure when they transcribed uh, and made different, uh, when they tried to add translations, they were so, uh, cru- it was so crucial for them to get every single dot correct because they were preserving the truth and able to bring that to other people. And so it's, it's preserved by careful handling of God's word. That is why at our churches we study a book in the Bible or it's clearly out of a passage. It has context to it. And it's not just half of a verse and then we talk about feel-good stuff, right? This is uh, very important for us because that can get you down a slippery slope. Um, also, another way we preserve truth is by following it, right? Applying it, obeying it. So not just delivering it, but we are marked by the truth by when we take and take steps in that obedience. The last mark we have of the church, obviously there could probably be more, but this is just the four that I came up with, is mission. Mission is crucial. The people of God gather around the objective of worshiping God and making disciples of all nations. If we become a church that is inward focused and no longer outward focused, we are no longer a church. You can look like it for a while, but eventually it will die. And so uh, we're going to get into it again when we talk about the kingdom, but it's so crucial for us as a church to always focus on mission. We're sacrificing for the greater common good of reaching those who are not yet in our doors. 
Now the next topic we're looking at in our notes is uh, the next page is structure of the church. Now this one I, uh, I hesitated putting in there because I can spend all of these topics. I could spend a whole hour. Don't worry. I won't. I could spend a long time talking on each of these categories. But I hope to kind of give you as all of this uh, a brief overview of what the structure of the church. All these different things. The first structure that, that God instilled as we read in scriptures is leadership. As you see in the notes, Paul gives the church a set of qualifications that the elders and deacons of the local, of the local church. And, and so they must, uh, they must qualify, they must pass in order to be in the ministry. Uh, did you know there's a difference between an elder and a deacon? An elder, an, uh, what? Presbuteros is elder, uh, which you get the word presbyterian. Pres- okay, so uh, elder is, they serve by teaching. Okay, that's not in your notes. The major way you're an elder is you're someone who rightfully handles God's word and delivers it to, the, to its people. Okay? Um, a deacon, so, so elder serves by teaching. A deacon teaches by serving. See that? A deacon's main objective is to serve its people. Okay? Someone's in the hospital. Deacons are getting stuff together to make sure those people are cared for. Uh, we see that beginning in Acts because the apostles, these, these elders, were getting so consumed in making sure everybody had what they needed that they were no longer able to pray for their people or, or make sermons for their people. And so they gathered together and said, we need to make deacons, we need to make people and so that the elders can be set aside for the preaching of God's word and prayer. And so that's what we see in the structure. Now, is there a certain number, how many elders you should have? We don't see that in scripture. He leaves it up to us. And so uh, that is up to each denomination, each church, actually. Uh, you really, uh, yeah, it, there is no, but, but here's the most important thing we know about leadership. Christ is the chief shepherd, amen? He's the head of the church. And so uh, we are just under shepherds, under him who is the chief shepherd. He's ultimately the one that is leading our congregation. We believe that. Like, that's a real thing. That's not just some hypothetical Jesus is leading this church. He loves this church because it's his bride, and he seeks to sanctify us in his truth. All right, the next thing we see, um, structure of the church, house or corporate. What's great is that God does not require a certain model to have church. Um, Here in America, it's very conducive to have a corporate, what I mean by that, like what we're having today, an actual building set aside to be the church. We also, though, all throughout the world, we also have it here in America. House churches are also exploding currently uh, throughout the world. In China, uh, it's said that there, I think I heard a stat, it's like 300 churches are planted every day in China right now. And it's mainly through the house church because if you, if you didn't know, it's illegal to be a Christian there. And so they gather in their homes and they keep it at a certain number. And once they get too big... They decide, hey, let's multiply and go meet in another home and plant another church. And so house, church, or corporate. So I, we will never be the people that say, oh, this is the right model. No, this model just fits us in our cultural context, okay? So I think that's very important to know. Uh, that's not, that's, uh, I've met some house church people, and they're like, you know, you're the devil for having a building. I don't believe that. Uh, at least, yeah, I don't. Okay, number of churches. Uh, the number of churches. God does not require, uh, okay, house or corporate, and where am I? Okay, uh, number of churches. It does not matter. Uh, he allows the freedom. In other words, how many churches per area? Um, so uh, a lot of people ask, okay, like Queen Creek, at what point do we no longer plant more churches? We say at the point where there's no longer anybody else who isn't a Christian. Amen? 
And so uh, we will get to this at the very end of this session, but there's a reason why we plant churches even within the same city, and that's because there's different domains in the city. But that's for the last thing, okay? So just calm down. All right, so uh, the number of churches, thankfully God does not put a, a requirement on that. Church discipline. Bet you didn't think that was one of them. Structure of the church, uh, the last fill in the blank, is church discipline. Jesus helps us walk through issues within the church by using the model that's found in Matthew chapter 18. You can't hear me? No, yeah, so uh, to explain that, uh, there was a lot of printing issues. There's supposed to be one more fill in the blank on the bottom where it's just blank and just put in church discipline. Um, yeah. And I also notice, uh, yeah, we'll fix that later, but that is the one thing. We had a lot of printer issues for some weird reason this week, um, and everything was the same. It's kind of frustrating. All right, so some churches uh, in today's culture veer away from church discipline, uh, but if you read, I actually, one of the, well, the major book recommendations that's at the end of your packet this week is Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever, and one of the marks of a church is to be a church that disciplines. Now, I had a pastor tell me, professor actually, Dr. Shute, uh, the best way to look at church discipline, it really is church restoration. The ultimate goal is to restore somebody back into the body. But guys, think about it. We have to discipline our people because we are called to be set apart. If we have people in our church who are not set apart, they are actually ruining the, your, our entire witness, and it's not keeping the church holy. So we're going to look into that uh, under the next category of responsibility of the church. Uh, this is actually, you can study Matthew chapter 18. This is where I got these six points. Uh, and so Matthew 18 lays out a framework for us and how we must uh, address this. Uh, the first thing we have, are you guys okay on the, fill in the blanks now? Okay, the first thing we have is the church has authority over individual members. Just let that sink in, all right? Um, most people don't assume this, especially in today's culture. We come in saying, you are here to serve me, and so you don't have any authority over me. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we're so depressed. We have no understanding of authority. And, and here, here's my rebuttal. If you don't think your church should have authority over you, then go to a different church and find a church that you respect enough to agree, okay, this church has authority over my soul. Because it's very clear in Scripture. And so when, we, when you sign up as a member of our church, you're saying... You know, I am submitting to the authority of the church. Now, are we a dictator? My dad, maybe, but I'm just kidding. Uh, there needed to be laughter in this room, all right? Uh, he is my, yeah. Okay, and so, uh, you know, we take that responsibility heavily, okay? And so we are judged double portioned by how we shepherd our people. But we, you guys, oh man, it's in Hebrews. We greatly miss out on blessings when we don't submit to the authority that God has established in the church. Even once, think of David and Saul, right? David would not kill Saul because he says, I will not touch the anointed. He may be, for him, he's like, I know he's in the wrong path, but still God has his hand over him. And so I will not usurp the authority that God has given. That's another reason why we need to pray for our president, no matter who it is, because God established them in that authority. And we must honor that and submit to that. I think that's in Romans. It is. And so... I'll stop doing that. All right, so this, uh, this does make it personal and relational. So this, man, you, we can't, our church, thankfully, we are about the community of people, and so we exercise that authority uh, with kindness and compassion. But if we are 
tell, calling you to something, it's through God's word and it's for your greater good. Here's the next point because time. Uh, church has the responsibility to promote holiness in its people. Every single week as pastors, we study God's word with the intention of understanding our people and seeing, okay, where are we not looking like Jesus? Let's use this word to sanctify us and bring us further closer to God and, and more set apart from this culture. Okay, so it's one of our, it's a, a huge duty of ours. And so we practice and we preach repentance, uh, forgiveness and discipline. And, uh, and so forgiveness is very huge, all these things. And so this is, the, the, I mean, that's a huge essential part of the church. Another thing, the church has a responsibility to promote unity among its people. We are so much better together than we are apart, amen? And we can do so much when we're unified. And that's why I love with our system, we have three churches, you know, Passion Creek, Cowboy, and here, uh, we are all unified together, which makes us even stronger. We could have started our own little thing and not been connected, but we say, why not? Scripture says, let us be unified, and so we're able to do way more good uh, by you being unified than not being unified. I think this is a huge witness, but let's keep moving. Uh, the church represents heaven on earth. Have you ever thought about that? Now let us, I want to admit, it's partial, you know, like... I've met some of you, right? So like this isn't heaven on earth. My wife, she brings it, okay? And so, uh, but we, our duty is to bring heaven on earth, meaning we are showing people what God intended in humanity. We are showing people what forgiveness looks like. That's a piece of heaven on earth. We are showing people what holiness looks like and unity looks like. We are bringing heaven to earth, and so we want to be a people so set apart but loving and compassionate to where people say, I want heaven because I've got a glimpse of it in you. And that's what the church is called to do. Notice how this isn't a, I, this, I think this is the best church growth model. Not get a crazy speaker, get, you know, crazy lights, whatever. And by the way, I don't think those things are bad. But if we rely on those things, the scripture clearly says this is, this, is, this is the foundation of the church. And that's what we're called to. And we take it seriously here. The other thing is the church is gathered. The church is supposed to know each other. We're supposed to be relational with each other. Uh, that also includes introverts. Cannot use that as an excuse. You may not have as many friends, but you have good friends. Amen? Introverts unite. Okay? And so that's what we're called to do. We're called to, uh, uh, this is in a local setting. We're called to gather in the name of Jesus. Uh, we see that in Matthew 18, 20. Uh, this verse is not about a prayer meeting, but, by, but about coming together even for discipline. By the way, when it says where two or three are gathered in my name, what does it say? There will be also. Did you know that's in the context of church discipline? I think that's fascinating. So when two or three gather and say, okay, we're calling you to restore. We're calling you to repentance. I will tell you as a pastor, that is the most terrifying moment for pastoring. And it's so comforting to know that God is among us at that moment. And that's powerful. So don't use that as an excuse. I have five people in my family where two or three are gathered. The Lord is with us also. That's my church. Amen. I'm the preacher and the worship leader and I take my own tithe. Right? That's not what God calls us to do. All right, here's the last thing. Jesus' presence is among the church. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that truth. I love it. I've talked to some of you, and, and uh, thankfully, we have a lot of new people who are very new to our church coming to this. And I heard from several people, Dad, we just felt the Holy Spirit, or we just knew God was here. We, when we walked in the doors, we had this feeling. And that's fantastic. And that is a mark of the church. That is how 
that is our responsibility to do everything we can uh, to uh, display that. I really need to get going faster, okay? So stop making me explain stuff. All right, the church described in the book of Ephesians. Now, man, okay, I'm going to do it. This is so important. Read the Bible and don't think of it as me, but think of it as we. It will change everything. Absolutely change your life. Read Ephesians and don't think for a second about yourself, but think about the church and that book will explode. It is so powerful. I'm going to run through it. Uh, all right, church described the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we see, obviously there's a lot there, but a great way to summarize it is we are submissive to Christ as the head and we are active in God's mission. We're submissive to Christ as the head. We, as a collective body of believers, are coming together and we submit under his lordship. Huge. All right, the next thing we see in Ephesians 2, man, Ephesians 2 will preach. You just have to read it. You don't have to explain it. Just read it and people will get saved, okay? And so what you see in Ephesians 2, apart from Christ, we are outside the kingdom, strangers to the covenant and have no hope. But in Christ, we are a new humanity that is close to God and unified in Christ. I love it. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not by works. Amen? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's in the book of Ephesians alone, or just Paul's letters. Paul's letters, I actually wrote a paper on that my sophomore year. He said in Christ 164 times in his letters. Very important, okay? So in Christ, all right, we are now a part of this new humanity. Now Ephesians chapter 3, uh, use this framework when you study this. Ephesians 3, we see that um, God always intended to bring the Gentiles into the people of God. If you were not a Jew, everybody says amen, right? Because if you read the Old Testament, it was... But here's what's fascinating. Did you know in the Old Testament, Gentiles were believers in God? Do you know that? Did you know that God always intended from the beginning for Gentiles to be in the kingdom of God? Uh, think of stories like Naaman, right? Think of stories uh, like the Queen of Sheba coming. Here was the model in the Old Testament. Um, uh, if you, another book recommendation, nobody will buy it, but it's great. Mission of God by Christopher Wright. He walks through the Old Testament and he shows you how this was God's model. In the Old Testament, he had the whole world in mind. Read Genesis 12. What is God, what's the blessing to Abraham? In you, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. Here was the model though. The model in the Old Testament was come and see. Come to Jerusalem, see the temple, see God's glory on display among the Israelites. You know what the New Testament it is? Go and tell. Go to the ends of the earth because now the temple is no longer in one location, but we are the temple and we are called to go out. Gentiles have always been in the plan of God. And that makes me a Gentile very, very happy. By the way, a Gentile is anybody who is not a Jewish which people get confused. Jewish is both a religion and a ethnicity, a people group, okay? So that's important to know. All right, Ephesians chapter four. We see that God equips the church with different gifts to fulfill the mission of God. It is the most disgusting thing in the world to come to a church with a lot of people and there's only one person up here practicing his gift and the other people don't practice their gift throughout the week. If you're a believer in Jesus, he has given you a gift right away. And you're called to exercise that gift and use it for the mission of God. Why else do we gather? 
right? We gather to be encouraged because we are using our gifts all week and we need a good pick-me-up and we need to encourage each other and praise God for what he is doing and keep pressing forward. So that's a, a great picture that we see. We're doing good on time. Quit worrying, Trey. All right, now the next concept we have is what is the kingdom of God? Let me get a water real quick. What is the kingdom of God? When I was a freshman and sophomore at Cal, the California Baptist University, uh, the greatest university on the planet, and when I was there, my eyes were completely opened and just, I was, man, my heart was just, oh, it was awesome. When I learned about the kingdom of God in a way I've never heard it before. And so I hope to bring this before you. Jeff Lewis was my professor, and uh, this was his definition of the kingdom of God. So I'm totally stealing it, but I'm giving him credit. If you're watching Jeff, which I know you're not. All right. God has come to defeat the enemies of God and man. He invites mankind to enter the blessings of his redemptive reign and charges his people to live out the reality of his rule in community that has been sent out to engage the whole world. Are you tracking? <laughs> okay. This is a very, uh, actually, if you look at your notes, we're going to dissect that whole sentence or sentences or whatever he did. And we're going to look at each part and we're going to understand what the kingdom of God is. Okay. So the first fill in the blank we have for the kingdom of God is invasion. God has come. I love it. What, is, what does Jesus say? The kingdom of God is at hand. How could he say that? Because he's the king. And he has come to the earth. If you read Old Testament, the people of God, the Jewish people, thought when they, because kingdom is a very strong concept throughout the whole Bible, they thought kingdom to them meant an empire on earth. That the Jews would take over the world. That's why they were so confused when Jesus, when, when, he, when he didn't fight back, but he accepted to go on the cross. And when he says, what, my kingdom is not of this world. That threw the Jews off because they thought the kingdom that was promised was something that we see here on earth. You know what's fascinating? Jean brought this up this week and he reminded me. You know what we view the kingdom as here? We think it's only heaven. But the reality is it's both. We actually have the kingdom here on earth because Jesus brought it with his resurrection. And we're bringing as much of the kingdom on earth as possible. Okay, so that's the first thing, invasion. God has come. John 1, 12, 1, 1 through 12. God has come. All right, here's the next thing. My, okay, yeah. Here's the next thing we see. Uh, fill in the blank, conquer. Because it says God has come to defeat the enemies of God and man. How do you get a kingdom? How do you start one? You've got to conquer, right? You have to take over your enemies. I think this is so good. Here's why it's good for us to understand in the Christian faith, to understand that the kingdom of God is a thing, that God came and conquered. It says he defeated the enemies of God and man. Here at our, uh, in our culture, we focus on the forgiveness of sin, right? Just forgive sin. But what's so important also is we need to focus on the defeat of sin. When we don't think in terms of the kingdom, I hope you're tracking with me, think Jesus is king, ruling and reigning. If we don't see what Jesus did on the cross, he forgave us, but how did he forgive us? Because he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. And so we're fighting from a victory that has already been won. This is, that dramatically changes everything, because it's no longer, oh, I just forgive you because I know I have to. No, like, 
I can forgive you because sin is no longer winning. Sin doesn't have to hold me down. Sin doesn't have to dictate the behavior that I do because in Christ I'm given a new humanity and I'm no longer bound by those chains. It's so important for us to see that we focus on forgiveness of sin, but we must also focus on the defeat of sin. This is also, we must see, sin is not just something you do. Sin is yielding to a power that enslaves you and controls you. A lot of us, we just, oh, it's just, you're just, you know, I'm a sinner. Sinning is a violent act of being an enemy of God by saying, I am submitting to a power other than you. I am submitting to a power of evil, and I'm being controlled by it. You guys see how that's important to see? Um, it really helps us. I think for me, it just makes me praise God all the more that he beat that. Amen? And that I'm no longer bound by that. It just makes me, it makes me happy. All right. Next thing we see in the kingdom of God is an invitation. He invites mankind to enter the blessings of his redemptive reign. You see that all throughout scripture. Um, Isaiah 52, 7, for example. Uh, Romans 14, 7, if you're taking notes. Also Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. I know someone told me, like three of you, 18 of you, 1,000 of you last week said I talked too fast. I am sorry. But Isaiah 50, I'm giving you one more chance. Isaiah 52, 7. Romans 14, 7. Learn how to abbreviate. And Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. Here's what he means by that. So we have this king, and he's inviting mankind to enjoy in his redemptive reign. You have this concept called shalom. Have you ever heard of shalom? It's peace. It's very fascinating if you study the text. If you study shalom, it's a Hebrew word. Shalom, in our vocabulary, peace just means absence of pain. But peace in the Bible, that's only 10% of peace. Peace is flourishing. Peace is not just not having bad, but having good beyond abundance. And what God does by bringing the kingdom here on earth, he invites us into a kingdom of peace, not of war, because he already won the war. Isn't that amazing? That's why we can say, hey, in Christ, you can have your family put back together because we operate in the kingdom which he's bringing to us, and that is a kingdom of peace. I think it's good. I don't know. All right. Uh, the next thing we have is king, obviously. This is a, uh, a huge thing. Uh, in his definition of kingdom, uh, what is king? We are called to live out the reality of his rule in community. Here's why I think it's so important for us to see Jesus as king. Because it's Jesus as savior is true. But when you only see Jesus as your savior, it's like, thanks, buddy, for helping me. You know what I'm saying? But king, it, oh man, like for, it's so hard for us because we're democracy, right? But a king is not only someone you, you obey him, you don't ask questions, but you submit to him, you, you are respectful of him, you fear him, you fear a king, okay? And so throughout history, it's like, okay, yeah, Jesus is the true king, the king that actually won't abuse its power. So we have to see in the, in the, when you read the whole Bible, Jesus is king. He's ruling and reigning. And so what we are called to do, when we come to the text, when we come to the Bible, we don't say, okay, God, what do you have for me? We say, God, okay, I'm submitting to you. What must I do? What are you, not what can you do for me, but what, must, what can I do for you? You see that difference there? It's so important. When you share the gospel, I encourage you to mention and really exaggerate the point that Jesus is king. Lord is another good word, but Lord doesn't also bring a lot of weight in our culture. 
right? We're like, what's Lord, you know? King is a great way. Boss, even that I don't like. I like king. And so that's what we see. Here's the last thing we see. In order for a kingdom to expand, the kingdom has a commissioning. He calls his people to... I I love this kingdom language because you're passionately extending the borders of the kingdom. You're doing whatever it takes to, to expand the kingdom. Now, spiritually, we do that. That does not mean we say, okay, here's a gun to your head. I'm doing whatever it takes. Believe in Jesus. That is not what we do, all right? Uh, and so maybe cowboys do. But uh, and so what he's called us to do is to violently pray for people, amen? To, to, to passionately plea with people, urge people, show them what it looks like. And so we have the commissioning, if you know Matthew 28. You also see John 17, 18. It says, uh, uh, just as I've been sent into the world, I have sent them into the world. We are uh, sent people. We're, and so that's what it's the last point. We are sent out to engage the world. All right. Time for a history lesson. Moravian movement. Has anybody ever heard of the Moravians before? Please. You, awesome. We got one. One? Okay. Someone else can raise their hand just to... I'll question you after. Okay, we got two. Okay. Uh, I'll quiz you. Oh, no, no. So here's the Moravian movement. This is something that's fascinating to me. Uh, this is what I learned from Jeff Lewis, and it just blew my mind away. I know I keep saying that tonight. But what we have in uh, the Moravian movement, it really kind of began in the 1730s, and it went all the way to 1930. Okay? It was a 200-year amazing act of God. What we have with the Moravians is they were actually just a small local church that was located in Germany. But what happened though, the preacher started recognizing when he was reading his Bible, it was no longer just, the Bible was not what can, I, what can God do for my local church, it's what, what can we do for the kingdom of God? And I actually heard another pastor say that this week and uh, a couple times, but like for me as a pastor, when you have a heart for the kingdom of God, when I pray for revival to come to the city, if my heart is truly for the kingdom, I will, be re- I will rejoice if God brings revival to the church next door and not my own. See that difference there? When we make it about the kingdom, we just want people to get saved. And if you're a Bible-believing church, it doesn't matter if my logo's on it or not. Praise the Lord, we're doing it for the whole thing. See that? So the Moravians caught wind of that. They said, why are we wasting our energy trying to just make our thing great while the whole world is desperately needing God. And so what they did is uh, they, they, they decided to have uh, a few core principles for them, for them to live by. Uh, they were to live humbly among the heathen. In other words, I talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. What they decided to do is, they called them the heathen, by the way. I just think that's funny. Uh, hey, heathen, that doesn't work today. Uh, but they would go to the heathen, and they would live the way that those heathens would live. So if they lived in a hut, guess where they lived? In a hut. If they lived in a mansion, they lived in a hut. No, you know, like God called them to, to not be above anybody. Okay? That's what they, that was the number one thing. Another thing they said is they were to always preach the crucified Christ immediately, which I find fascinating. Their aim was to watch for individuals seeking after truth. So in other words, they would look for a person of peace. They would go to a community. They were trying to expand the kingdom. So it wasn't just about their local church. They were trying to bring the, the, the kingdom everywhere. And so they would be sent. Uh, there's a cool map I can show you if you ask me later. But there was this little church in Germany sent 
people all over the world to places where they haven't heard of Jesus. And what they would do is they would preach the gospel and the first person that came to Christ that had influence, they would pour and invest their life into them so that this movement of God would go beyond just their lifetime. And also what I love is tent, tent making was not an option, it was their strategy. This is what we do at our church, bivocational. They not only were among the people, but they worked for the people. Because they had, here, here's the concept about the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, your objective is for the entire city to flourish. Do you guys see that? So when you come, it's not, okay, I will serve you just so you can come to my church. That's not the objective. The objective is I will serve you because God loves you and I care for the city and there's going to be more people that care for each other. But I'm going to be preaching Christ crucified the whole time, but that doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm going to serve you no matter who you are. And this was the Moravian movement. I'm going to start uh, kind of uh, pick up track because of time. But they literally sent so many missionaries. They, here's what they, oh, I love it. It all began because the pastor recognized the kingdom of God is where it's about. It's not about our little empire, but it's about the entire world reaching people for Christ. And so they started a 24-hour prayer chain in 1727, and it lasted. Every, somebody was praying in the Moravian movement, the Moravian church, 24-7 from 1727 to 1827 for 100 years straight. There wasn't a time when somebody wasn't in there praying that the kingdom of God would be expanded through their little church. How cool is that? Goosebumps again. Here's what they, dis here's what they did. From 1732 to 1760, they sent out 227 missionaries. From 1860 to 1930, this little church sent out 3,000 missionaries. And it averaged, because it wasn't a very big church, one out of every 12 members eventually became a missionary and was sent out. One out of every 12. And here's how it happened. They caught wind of not just what can we do for our church, but what can we do for the church? What can we do to expand the kingdom of God? That's why for me I'm so passionate about mobilizing college students to send them out around the globe. God's going to take care of our thing. Our goal is to t send as many out as possible. I love it. So, so here, man, we're good on time. Stop worrying, Trey. All right. Here's the directives of the king. So I suggest look up Google uh, Moravian Movement. Uh, that fascinates me. I love that it was centered on a couple things, by the way. Godly leadership, humility by serving among them, kingdom principles, and prayer. Prayer, we don't pray before the work. Prayer is the work. I love that. I've, I think the reason all those missionaries were sent because of that 24-hour prayer chain. So tonight we're starting a 24, right? Maybe? I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a joke or not. All right. That'll really uh, increase our uh, bill, but okay, the AC bill. Okay, so directives of the kingdom is the next thing. I'm actually getting this uh, from the book of Matthew. Okay, so if you read, it's fascinating. Read the book of Matthew. Kingdom is one of the largest principles you see, which I will tell you another book recommendation my professor wrote, but he's a big deal, so don't worry. Uh, he wrote, it's called The Kingdom of God by Christopher Morgan. I will say, if you're an academic, you'll love this. If you're not, you'll hate me. Okay, so if you're academic, get this book. If this whole topic of kingdom of God fascinates you, it goes through all of the Bible and talks about the principles of the kingdom in those sections. All right, the first thing we see, a directive of the kingdom, is ethics. Ethics of the kingdom. Okay, Matthew 5 through 7. Do you know what that's called? The Sermon on the 
Mount. People falsely think Sermon on the Mount is a set of rules that we must obey in order to get into heaven. That's not it. Sermon on the Mount it, it instead is characteristics of what the kingdom looks like. You see the difference? It's not qualifications to get in. No, how do we get in? The blood of Jesus. But once we're in, what does the kingdom of God look like? And it transcends all churches. It's the kingdom. The kingdom of God, what, it, what, is it, what, what are some things in Matthew 5 through 7? What? We have the Beatitudes. We have the, yeah, the poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have uh, pray, uh, ask, seek, knock. You have uh, do not lust, do not commit adultery. Uh, if you've lusted in your heart, then you've committed, if you if, uh, do not murder, but if you thought in your mind. So as people of God, we are renewing our minds. We are becoming these people. That's what the kingdom looks like. We're called to have ethics. And why do we have ethics? Because we, when you're a believer in Christ, you're representing King Jesus every day of your life. And so we are showing the world what it looks like to be a part of our kingdom. Second thing we have, uh, Matthew. so that was Matthew 5 through 7, if you're taking notes also. Oh, I guess it's already on the notes. Matthew 10, we read uh, the mission of his kingdom. We see the mission of his kingdom. So in Matthew 10, you see Jesus sending out the 72, and he says, go heal the sick, right? Proclaim the truth. You know what I... So I preached Luke 10 like 18 weeks ago, and I love it. When you read Luke 10, it's the same thing as Matthew 10. When those 72, I'm good on time. When those 72 disciples come back, I love it. When those 72 disciples come back to Jesus, do you know the story? They're pumped. They're like, Jesus, dude, even demons are subject to us in your name. Well, how does Jesus respond? I saw Satan fall from light, like lightning from heaven. And he says, do not rejoice in the fact that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Here's what I love about the mission of his kingdom. I, lo I love this. The, why do we do what we do? We don't go and lead people to Christ because we are trying to usurp our authority and make it all about us and what we do for God. We are just so stinking thankful that he, God, this king, we deserve punishment, but instead he's given us life. At the end of the day, intimacy with Jesus is always more important than ministry for Jesus. And that is the mission of the kingdom. We are called, our number one mission is to love God. And in turn, what happens is we love others and we bring other people to him. Very scary when we start making it about what we do instead of who we are in him. Now, you see in Matthew 13, we have a ton of parables there. And it talks about the mystery of the kingdom. It's fascinating. The kingdom is hard to fully figure out because we won't fully see it until we're in heaven. And so he gives these parables to kind of say, well, here's the best way I can describe how the kingdom is. A couple of the parables. We have the parable of the weeds. The kingdom has come, but evil still coexists in the kingdom for a season. In other words, we have the kingdom here, but we also have evil still, right? Until Jesus comes back again. And so that, that's something uh, that's kind of a mystery. Another thing is we have the parable of the mustard seed. It, it, in other words, this doesn't make sense to man, but in God's kingdom, this completely works. Uh, the parable of the mustard seed is that that which seems insignificant doesn't negate the reality that the kingdom has come. In other words, the parable of the mustard seed, it looks insignificant, but if you put your hope and trust in God, great things could happen. Uh, parable of the net, the community created by the entrance of the kingdom in this world is not a pure community until Christ's return. In other words, it will look like people are in the kingdom, 
but the reality is they were just posers. You know what I'm saying? So you grab the net, but eventually it will be sifted out, and those who truly believe in Jesus will be revealed at the end of time. I hope I didn't get too crazy on that. All right, the next thing we see is community. Matthew 18, we just went through it. And so in other words, a part of the kingdom is that we are community, and part of that is restoring brothers, going through this process, go back to the notes on the responsibility of the church. Next thing we have is anticipation. What are we called to do? We're called to anticipate that the king is coming. How many of us use, how many of us think about the second coming all the time? I don't. I repent of that. Like, like uh, I, I read John Calvin, and he, don't, don't start throwing spears at me if you don't like him, but he said there's three ways to mortify sin, to become uh, more Christ-like and to stop sinning, and his third point was to meditate and think about the second coming. Isn't that fascinating? Us thinking about him coming. So as a kingdom people, we are anticipating his arrival. This doesn't mean we're going, oh, Lord, just come. This whole, I hate my neighbor, kill him. Like, that's not what that means. What it means, or my mother-in-law, I just came, my mother-in-law's here, so, okay, we're moving on. I just messed She is here. Okay, so what we're called to do is just, most mother-in-law is a thing. It's not what I think of you. Okay, so what we're called to do is, uh, where am I at? <laughs> okay, what we're called to do is, look, we're anticipating. In other words, guys, Jesus is coming. I need to tell my neighbor. Jesus is coming. My brother doesn't believe in Jesus. Praise the Lord, he's coming, because there's going to be no more pain or crying or, or any of that anymore. But man, who have I not told about this? Because he's coming soon. It's a positive motive, not, well, just forget the world. I'm, you know, I've given up on it. Jesus is coming back anyways. Praise Jesus. That's not what he calls us to do. All right, here's my last little ditty, and then we'll be done. The role of the church. Most of you guys can't see the fill in the blank, but there's three points we're going to have here. The church exists to expand the kingdom of God. Amen? That's why we're here. That is why, as a church, we will always focus on not just our church. That is why we are so proud to be Southern Baptists, because we are part, when we give every Sunday, we give to the largest missionary agency in the world. No one is sending more missionaries than we are. I think that's cool. And I even think nobody's planting more churches in North America than we are. And so, not even close. We plant 22 churches every Sunday in North America. Isn't that cool? By when you give. If you give, right? When you give, this is part of what happens. Um, here's, okay. Da, da, da. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Here is how, okay, there's two ways to view the world, okay? Either think of it in the American model of I am here to grow just my church, or the better way, by the way, if we could take a quiz later, the other way is to think I am here for the church, I am loyal to my local church, I love my church, however, I am also thinking about the kingdom. By the way, I've heard so many people use this as an excuse. I'm just for the kingdom, so I just go to church here, church there, church everywhere, right? You know, back row Baptist, bed row Baptist, you know, down there, you know, all that. That's not, just listen to the first half of the session. What it means, though, is through this church, I'm seeking to bless other churches. Um, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. Okay, so here's, in the American model of church planting, when you don't think of the kingdom, here's what people do. We plant a church, we make disciples, and then we engage the culture. That's the model of American non-kingdom thinking, okay? I'm just here to do my own thing, so I'm going to plant a church, I'm going to send out flyers, then I, people are going to come in, I'm going to make disciples of them, and then once we do that, then we'll engage the culture. You know what the kingdom work is? You know what God has called us to do? 
flip it around. How do we do it? We engage the culture. By engaging the culture, we start making disciples. And when we make disciples, guess what? We got a church. And that is what you see over and over and over. You're actually caring for the people. You're engaging the city. You're looking at the needs of the people, leading them to Christ, and then starting this thing called church. Okay, so here's the first point. Engage the culture. When we have a kingdom perspective, our emphasis is on engaging the culture. Now, I mentioned before Shalom. You guys remember that? Anybody know Jeremiah 29, 11? You know that one? If I know the plans I have for you? Says the Lord, plans to prosper. Yeah, be in health. What, what else? What do we got? Yeah. Not to harm you. Brings a hope and a future. Did you know that? Oh, man. You're about to learn something. Jeremiah 29, 11 is not a promise for you to get your nice car. All right? Here's what it is. Jeremiah 29. I just want to preach this so bad. Jeremiah 29 is Israelites who are in exile. They're not in Israel. They feel like God has forgotten them. What do we do? And what God says is, look, I'm doing this because I'm about the kingdom of God. I'm about Gentiles. So guess what? I allowed you to be taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. And here's the point. I want you to bring that shalom that's in Jerusalem. I'm telling you to bring that shalom here in Babylon. He's saying, look, I know the plans I have for you. And guess what it is? It's plan for you to prosper among the people so that you can lead the people to God. That is the kingdom. So here's the four ways that we engage the culture that we see in Jeremiah 29 11. First of all, build. In Jeremiah 29, you, God tells them to build. In other words, dwell among the people. Be among them. Have friends that aren't in the church. By the way, have friends in the church too. That's also good. Another thing about build, that means working hard. Actually doing something for the community. Amen? Then we also see in Jeremiah 29 and 11 to plant. You know why I don't like planting? It takes patience. What God calls us to do with kingdom ethic, but when we're thinking about the kingdom, we are seeking to lead our neighbor to Jesus, even though he told us no already five times. We have patience. We love. We don't just write them off. We're engaging the culture. We don't say, oh, I told you about Jesus once, now you're going to hell. We continually love them. The next thing we do, he says to multiply. In other words, he says to actually multiply. We can use this in multiple ways. There he's saying, have kids produce, multiply. For us as a church, we need to have more churches in the city to be more of a light in the city. So don't just us for no more. No, we need to get work in and multiply so we can be in so many different parts of the city and affecting as many people as possible. The other, the last thing he says to seek the welfare of all the people. In other words, even if they don't come to Jesus, I still love them and I want what's best for them as much as possible. So we serve, we, 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 we sweep the streets. We, we feed the homeless. We go serve at a school cafeteria thing. Why? It's not a gimmick to get more people to our church. It's because God has called the kingdom. What does he say? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom come. Let your will be done. Right? In other words, when we serve people, it's because that's what the kingdom of God does. We serve. We love. And so that is why we do what we do. We seek the welfare, which means the overall well-being. Then what we do is we make disciples. This is what the church has called us to do. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. In other words, our purpose at this church is to raise you up in knowledge and love and to send you out. Make disciples of Jesus. In the kingdom, that is our number one objective, to engage the culture which leads people to making disciples. Which, by the way, did you know making disciples begins before they become a believer? 
You make a disciple when you are witnessing to them and showing the example of what it looks like to be a Christian. You are already making them a disciple. They just officially become one later. And then you plant churches. It has to be in that order. So here's why we plant churches. In every city, you have this thing called domains. Okay? A domain of a city. This isn't on your notes. Maybe you want to write that down. There are at least like eight different domains in mainly every city. Here's what I mean by that. There is an arts and media domain. Anybody enjoy arts or media? Raise your hand. Just me. That makes sense. That's why I'm the only one making Photoshop stuff around here besides me and KJ. All right. Arts and media. So there's certain cultures, like for us, we do things at the theater because we love arts and media. And so we, what we're doing at the theater, why we're staying at the theater is we're doing certain things that if you love art and media, you feel right at home. Do you guys see that? Another domain in, in, in uh, city is business and economics. Business type people. You guys talk a certain language. That's a domain churches uh, try to reach. Education is another domain. Anybody in the education domain? Teach or you're a student? Awesome. Do not critique my teaching tonight. And so God has a certain plan for you. Here's why it's so important. We need churches. Not one church can reach all domains of a city, right? Can you imagine? uh, Let's say our church here. Let's say it's actually more blue collar, but let's just go education. Let's say God moves in a mighty way, but because of just our limitations, we just have a bunch of teachers that go here. Praise God. The school will have revival, but what about the hospital? So we need to plant as many churches as possible to reach as many different domains as possible so that the gospel can take saturate all of the city. You guys tracking? So another, here's another one. Uh, government. We need some of y'all to get in there, okay? Because... We are having, like even this city, there's certain things. It took forever to build this because they kept saying no because they voted against us because they were against who we are. Can you imagine if we had a couple nice, good Christians in there? What could have happened? We'd have been here for 10 years. All right. So uh, the government domain. Healthcare and medicine is another domain. We're hoping to reach them. We're hoping to have churches, a smart, so that pastor will be more intellectual than a blue-collar domain. You get what I'm saying? No offense to blue-collar. You're like, what does intellectual mean? Thank you. All right, so science and technology. This is a domain I'm seeking to reach with the engineers at ASU Polytech. Guys, they are so hard to talk to, all right? But we are looking to reach that domain, and there are certain things we do at the theater, and I'm only talking just from my experience. There's so many things we do here. That's why we meet at Cowboy Church, by the way. We're reaching a domain there. With the way we design this place is we're reaching certain domains. But guess what? We cannot, we will not be as effective if we try to reach every single domain just here at this location. That is why we have a cowboy church. That is why we have a Passion Creek at the theater. That is why we're praying for more. Now, American church model, non-kingdom, local empire, just build up my church. We're doing the dumbest thing in the world. Why are we taking... Why are we doing extending our budget by having multiple locations? But when you start to recognize that God blesses his people when they think kingdom, when they think the entire city, not just my own little thing, everything changes. The last domain that we have is sports. Isn't that a huge domain here? And so we hope, what's grateful about that one is I think all of our congregations kind of reach that domain in certain ways, but like roping is a sport, right? Is it? Okay, so... Cowboy Church reaches that sport in a great way, right? Hopefully we reach basketball because that's what I love. But 
different domains. We have to think that way. That's why I can't tell you when we announced through this building, but then we also announced we're staying. I got some stanky eyes, all right? I got like, we're doing what? You know, but when we think kingdom perspective, I forgive you if that was you. I know you're here. No, <laughs> when we think kingdom perspective, we realize we need to plant more. We don't have enough. What is it, Dad? For a Southern Baptist church in Queen Creek uh, and Santan Valley area, we have one SBC church for every 33,000 people. Do you think that's enough? If we only had one, it'd be one for every 130,000, 127,000. That's why we plant more churches, because the more churches, more opportunities to reach different people, different domains, and we expand the kingdom of God. And what I love to think about is all these different churches we're planting are also going to plant other churches. We're going to send other missionaries around all parts of the world. I'll stop preaching. All right. It takes all sorts of churches to reach all sorts of people in a city. And that's why we are kingdom-focused and not just our little church-focused.